Morning, everybody. My name is Scott, and I'll be doing uh, today's scripture reading. We are in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 15, verse 18, and going to chapter 16, verse 4. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, it's page 848. It's also on the screen to my left and right. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Thank you, Scott. In last week's passage, Jesus warns his, or excuse me, not warns, but, but promises really, actually, his, his followers that they will bear fruit. And bearing fruit could sound like specialized Christian jargon, right? But he simply means that he wants you to be effective as you follow him. And for this to happen, Jesus spoke of our relationship using a famous metaphor. He spoke of Christians being as connected to Jesus as branches are connected to a vine. And when that happens, he says, we, we bear fruit. Here's the strange thing, though. If last week's passage is in the same conversation as this week's passage. In fact, there's a seamless connection between them, which there is, perhaps spoken five minutes or an hour apart, in these same words. It is strange that Jesus begins our passage saying, if the world hates you. What does that imply? It implies that bearing fruit doesn't happen in a greenhouse, doesn't happen in sunny Napa Valley, California, or doesn't have to only happen there. Jesus means to encourage you and I, his followers, that fruit can grow in a hostile desert, which is good news. 
Let's pray as we look at this passage more closely. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we do so recognizing of the very kind and privileged place you've given us to come with largely out with, with no fear of repercussions. Where many brothers and sisters throughout the world do not have that same opportunity. And so we're thankful. But we're also asking, as we might ask for them, we would ask for us that you would steal our resolve to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A good many years ago, I was getting a haircut and having a conversation with a woman cutting my hair. And I don't know if uh, the conversation was as memorable to her as it was to me. Uh, I, I hope it was to some degree. I, I can't tell you whether it was a good haircut or a bad cut. That's not why it was memorable. Um, as one does, you know, we're making small talk. And I remember that in the course of answering the question, uh, who I am and what I do and why anybody would ever be a pastor, um, I remember the moment I was telling her the gospel, right? I'm telling her, okay, Jesus lived and he died and he rose and, and uh, we trust him, he, he changes our life. And, and, and again, I, ho- I hope the conversation, like I don't mean this in a cheap way, I hope it was memorable to her. Like Jesus uses random conversations like this about him to change people's life. But what I remember most is that the moment I'm explaining the gospel, she kind of leans forward, combs my hair down, and starts cutting right across my forehead with the scissors. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering if there's a better time when the scissors are not so close to my eye to tell her about Jesus. Um, especially because she didn't seem to appreciate it that much. Anyway, in verse 27... Jesus speaks of our bearing witness to him. Some versions will say testify. That's, that's courtroom language. It's language of giving a truthful account. Bearing witness to Jesus means explaining who he is and what he did, why that matters, and, and what our response ought to be. And maybe you have a story of bearing witness for Jesus that involves something more like actual persecution, not just the threat of scissors in your eyes. Certainly Christians throughout time have such stories. We read of them in the book of Acts where men like Stephen were killed as he bore witness to Jesus. There are stories that come down to us from kind of the lore of church history and I don't mean that dismissively. I mean it in a wonderful way. I think of a man named Polycarp. He was a church leader in an area called Smyrna, which is in Turkey, and he died about the middle of the first century, and when he's offered this chance to change his mind, Polycarp said, quote, 80 and six years I have served him, meaning Jesus, and he's done me no wrong. Then he added, how can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. What a story. More recent times, the, perhaps the most popular martyr 
would be that of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and three other missionaries who were violently killed in Ecuador on January 8th, 1956. And Jim Elliott famously wrote in his journal a few years before this happened, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I could go on, but you get the point, don't you? And yet not all persecution looks the same. Being hated by the world is, is something of a spectrum, we might say. On the one side, there's, there's violent death. On the other side, there might just be snide social interactions, right? And we see that spectrum in Scripture too. There is violent death on the one side of the persecution spectrum, and on the other side, there's just snide social interaction. So I think of the Apostle Paul when he preaches to the what we might call the social elites of his day in Acts 17. And they say to one another, scoffing, what does this babbler mean to say? It's very dismissive, Acts 17, 18. Somewhere in the middle, perhaps we'd put financial loss depending on the significance of it. Being excluded from certain marketplaces or being fired for doing things like refusing to put your preferred pronouns in your email signature. Now this is getting ahead of us, but I want to start here so that we can identify with the point of Jesus' words. He doesn't want his followers, meaning you, to be confused. And that's really kind and really wise of him. If the world hates you, Jesus begins verse 18. Then he says, know that it hated me before it hated you. Know. He wants us to know something beforehand. Yes, he wants us to bear fruit. He also wants us to know that bearing fruit might not be the kind of, or excuse me, bearing witness might not bear the kind of fruit that we hope it always does. And if we didn't know that, if we didn't have this category for bearing fruit faithfully or bearing witness faithfully, but it not bearing the kind of fruit we want it to bear, hope it would bear, pray that it would bear, see others perhaps in different parts of the world see that fruit bearing, then if we didn't know that, we'd be discouraged and maybe even to use his words, we'd fall away. So that's where we're headed. I want to look at this passage in three areas. Let's start with a theme we're already discussing. The first point is the clash with culture. Clash with culture. This theme of the world hating Christians, it's, it's sprinkled throughout the passage. When Jesus says the world, though, I, I want to clarify, he doesn't mean the created things. He doesn't mean rocks and trees and mountains or even something that feels more active like a tornado hating us. He, he doesn't mean the physical world. What, what he means by the world is this moral system of the world which is at odds with the call of Christ. That's what I mean by the clash with culture. And I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but I do want to read a lot of it just to get it in front of us again. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me again, verse 18. I'm going to read some, skip some, but you'll, you'll go with me here. Reading again in verse 18. If the world hates you, and he's going to use the word if a bunch of times, and you're going to start to think, I don't think he means if. <laughs> I think he means when, but if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Which is where Christians get the phrase of, or like, um, in the world but not of the world. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now moving on to verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And this is what David McHale read during the confession from Psalm 69. They hated me without cause. Coming down to verse 1 of chapter 16, I'll read these four. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Over the next few weeks, we'll be announcing that we're going to do, Lord willing, baptisms on Easter morning. If that interests you, we'd love to talk with you about it. But we think that being obedient to Jesus, when he he changes our hearts through faith, it's obedient to him to then be baptized, to, to symbolize that change of life, to go into the watery grave with him and to rise in newness of life. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, as I talk with younger children and parents about baptism from time to time, I sometimes end up saying that it might make sense to wait until this child is younger. So if that's you, we would love to baptize you. We'd love to talk about that. Sometimes, though, it makes sense for that elementary student or that middle school student to wait till they're a little older, perhaps till they're in high school. That is not so that the person can become more saved, right? You're a Christian or you're not. It's not about becoming more saved. Now, when we wait, if that person is a Christian, of course their faith deepens, and that's a wonderful thing. That's a good thing. It might make standing up here and saying what God's done in your life easier if your faith is deeper. All that's true. The reason, one of the reasons I might say wait, or our pastor elders might say wait, is this. As that young man or woman grows up, the contrast of what it means to follow Christ with peers and acquaintances and the world starts to become more stark. And that contrast can be helpful for that person as they choose to follow Jesus, for that contrast to be more apparent so that it it means more and says more. Historically, throughout the world, baptism was the mark of identification that would trigger persecution, could trigger persecution. Anybody can put their faith in Christ, but to be baptized meant something. Persecution has a, a way of clarifying our Deepest identity, doesn't it? Who are we? What really matters? Now, I'm not hoping for persecution here for anybody. (laughs) Especially those who are baptized, have been, or will be. Personally, I'd like to bear fruit in a greenhouse, right? Uh, Napa Valley. (laughs) Sun shining. But sometimes we know Jesus best when we are around people who know him least. Anyway, this hatred, this clash with culture Jesus speaks of is is nothing new. It began in the Garden of Eden. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, Genesis 3.15, 
first part of it anyway. And if you just flip a page over in Genesis, you see one brother kill another brother for what we might say is religion. There's religious motivations in part in February of 2022, so just two years ago, there was an author named Aaron Wren, not a popular name as far as like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not assuming most people will know who that is, but he wrote this article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And the article became so popular, people found it helpful um, that it's now become a book. It was just, the book just came out a few days ago. The book's titled Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. I've not read the book, but I've read the article because the book just came out two days ago, three days ago. I don't want to go into all the specifics of the article, but I want to present some of the framework to you because I think it's instructive for us. Aaron Wren, he, he, he's wrestling with the United States' relationship with Christianity over the years. And he talks about three phases from what he calls a positive world to a neutral world to what he now describes as a negative world. There was a time in the positive world where being a Christian afforded certain favors in society. Certain advances were possible simply because you were a Christian. Perhaps even in the workplace, people could, play, could claim in the positive world that there was such a thing as a moral majority. The that continued, he claims, until about 1994 when Wren says the U.S. became more neutral. In the neutral world, on the whole, Christianity wasn't certainly favored or necessarily hated against. These are generalizations, generalizations, all right? But on the whole, that's, that's, that's what he's saying. And then that period of time went on until 2014 when in the U.S., could then be characterized as a negative world where it's harder to be a Christian. Now, I don't want to go into all the specifics of why these markers and so on and so forth. His article, this article is more words than this sermon, so it's long, and the book has 272 pages, but I will tell you that this scheme maps onto my father's career really well. So he worked in a global for a global company, international, you all have products in your house, probably dozens of them from this company. They make a whole, they own a whole bunch of other smaller companies. Giant global company, did different roles from, began his career in 1980 and retired in 2020. So 40 years, one company, different roles, different cities. And when he began in 1980, he would say that being a Christian was looked on favorably to many respects, the, especially the people uh, his bosses and whatnot, the men and women who grew up in maybe the 40s and 50s where Christianity was more positive and then he moved into more of a neutral status where like, okay, no one was mad at him necessarily. Or like, someone might have been, but like not in general. Like it was fine if you want that. If you don't, that's, that's your thing. And then as he was winding his career down, he saw things on the horizon, tensions. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where the U.S. will be in 2044, if I'm still pastoring, and I hope I am. I'll be a few years away from retirement. I don't know where the U.S. will be in 2044, whether in revival or violent rebellion, but we, especially Christians living in the privileged place of America, need this reminder from verse 20. Go ahead and look at it with me. Verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master, 
Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus had used that phrase, um, a servant is not greater than a master, back in chapter 13 when he's washing feet. He's saying like, I'm gonna wash your feet, should I give you an example to follow, meaning not that we probably wash each other's feet, but that we do the lowly, dirty jobs that others don't wanna do because that's what servants do if that's what our master does. Here he's not talking about humility, he's talking about persecution. And if the master received persecution, how, who are we to go, that's, we're above that. So that's the first point. There is this clash between the call of Christ and culture. Now this passage is not all doom and gloom. Not at all. Not only is there a clash with culture, but there is comfort for Christians. I'm gonna draw these out a little more quickly, but, but look at the wording of verse 18 and then 25. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then in verse 25, but the word was written and their law must be fulfilled. This is again, Psalm 69, they hated me without cause. Like how's, what's comforting about that? What's comforting? The comfort for you this morning might be that if people are really, really mad at you, it might not be because you're doing Christianity wrong. If your child won't come home for, to see you at Christmas, if your coworker won't talk to you anymore, if your neighbor won't return the mail back to you that's accidentally delivered to his or her house because they don't like you because you're a Christian, it might not be because you're a bad Christian. It might be because you're a good one. That's the comfort. You might be doing it wrong, and we're gonna talk about that later. <laughs> But you might be doing everything right. You might be bearing fruit and it's just hard. I highlight this for the same reason I think Jesus does. Jesus knows that persecution has a way of messing with our head, messing with our mind. When your life is colored by persecution and suffering, you don't know what's true anymore. Have I been a jerk and that's why people hate me? You wonder? Have I not loved well enough? Or have I been following faithfully and that's why they're mad at me? Or am I just too worldly and so no one hates me and I don't know what's going on and why no one is mad at me? Jesus seems like it's something like people will not like us at times. So this persecution or lack of persecution, it can make us go crazy. Paul would later write to the Christians in Rome, if possible... As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18. Notice that double admonition. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Like that means that we should try doubly hard to live peaceably with all. But sometimes we can't. That phrase, if possible, means that sometimes peace just isn't possible. There's no amount of friendliness that will make the world or some parts of the world love us in return. It didn't work for Jesus. Passage here, Jesus' words, means that to be a comfort. There are other comforts. Verse 21, for example, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We've said that already. Jesus said it already. But, but then the second half of the verse, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Again, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I take this to mean, again, that it's not all doom and gloom. If Jesus had called these 11 men out of the world, 
then he'll do that for others. How did we get here? How did anyone begin to follow Christ? It comes from this bearing fruit. If they kept his word, there will be those who keep ours as we preach, not our word, but as we preach his word through us. Our words, his word, mingled together, bearing fruit. It's good news. And what it's saying is that we're going to bear fruit at times even in a hostile desert. And sometimes even that initial reaction that comes with hostility, perhaps even persecution, maybe in our world it's just coldness or indifference or kind of like, again, that snide social action, interaction. Maybe when we do that with conviction, but compassion, that first response of coldness and indifference won't be the final word. Maybe your conviction and compassion will be the thing that God uses to change their hearts. We find other comforts. Verse 1 in chapter 16, for example, Jesus says, this is important to see, like, notice what he says here. He says, I have said these things to you to do what? What's he say? To keep you from falling away. Said these things, keep you fall away. I said, this happens. I do this and this happens. The idea is that the word of Christ among the people of Christ is powerful and effective. In Genesis 1, God speaks and galaxies just fly into existence. As Ron was reading in the pastoral prayer, he, he, he speaks and it, it, like his word is so strong, it can strip a forest bare of its bark. <laughs> it's wild. Here Jesus speaks and his very words keep people from making the decisive break of faith, a deconstruction, an apostasy, whatever you want to call it, maybe that's what Christ's comforting word will be doing for you here this morning. Like, I don't know if I want to go to church and you come and you hear this word preached, you hear the song preached, and you're gathered here among God's people and you take communion and that is the very means by which God keeps you believing the gospel and not falling away. This is good news. There are other comforts. 26, 27, Jesus speaks of the helper coming, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus calls the Spirit of Truth. Now, Noah Gwynn is going to be preaching next week these passages. He's going to say a whole lot more about because the whole passage is about that. So I'm just going to leave that to him next week. But let's come to our last point. We still have a little bit to go. Hang with me. It'll be just a little bit longer this morning. But we come to our last point. And these, so far, they've been fairly clear, right? There's this clash with culture and there's comfort for Christians. Okay, we see that. Now, what I want to talk about is this call of the cross. It's the call to follow him along this path, the same path that Jesus himself walked. Jesus walked the costly road of conviction and compassion. But it can be tricky. Most of us, I hope, want to say we're following the call of the cross, I think. But how do we know that we're heeding the call of the cross? It can be tricky. And this challenge is in the passage itself. Look, look at verse 2 in chapter 16. 16.2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And these are the very actions the Apostle Paul does before he's converted 
in the book of Acts. He's putting people out of the synagogue. He's participating in the death of Christians. But did you notice the scary part of the verse? You say, well, which, which part's scary? <laughs> There's a few scary things. Here's the one I mean now. Will think. Maybe just put your finger on it or, or certainly let your eyes look at it. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. What does that imply? It implies we can be deceived. It implies we can be sincere in our convictions and sincerely wrong. I'll give you two examples. First is silly, I guess. In a way, the first silly one is actually very serious too. But then I'll give you something a little more, a lot more serious. So I was reading this book the other day. The author uh, quoted a survey. Now, he's a British author, the British publishing company. So the stats are from the UK, but um, I bet they map onto the US pretty well. He writes that in the West, there exists the well-documented, what he calls the, look at the words, get it right here, uh, better than average syndrome. And he quotes three stats. He says, 98% of the UK population, so like basically everyone, thinks that they have an above-average IQ. 98% think they have, they're above average. That doesn't work, right? Uh, that can't be true. Also, he writes, 95, so almost the same amount, of the population think they have above-average looks. Okay, you see where this is going. 98% think they're in the top 50% of all the nicest people in the UK. And of course, the Americans think, well, if they think that, you know, then, then we're in the top even whatever, right? Or, that's, or maybe they sound smart, so they're, maybe they are actually a little smart. I don't know. People from the UK. But anyway, we can think things true of us that aren't maybe fully true. Okay. How do we know we're following the call of the cross? 98% of us think we're in the top half of those following Jesus, probably. How do we know we're not too worldly? How do we know that in our supposed quest for holiness, we're not really just angry and rude, and that's why the world hates us? So, one more illustration. Take a few minutes, but go with me on a ride, okay? Parking lot back there, I don't know where you park in the street. We're gonna go north, you hit Jonestown Road. We're gonna go into the city, Jonestown's become Walnut Road, Progress Avenue, right over there. Three minutes, that's one minute to get there. Three minutes from there in two different directions, we end up in two very different places from a spiritual standpoint in this one regard. You go north up Progress Avenue. You're gonna drive by two rainbow flag churches. Very quickly, three minutes. You go into the city, three minutes. I don't know how I have a better word for this, but I'm gonna call it far, far right sign guy. Okay. Some of you aren't in the city much, but mm, like, you know, yes, the other, many of you are in the city very much. So for, because you're, others of you are not, I'll just tell you like, so far right, far right sign guy puts huge signs in his yard. And yesterday he had the quote, Thomas Jefferson on one side. And then on the other side, um, if you're driving into the city, it said, God bless bikers and truckers. Not very offensive. Most of the time, these are designed to be incredibly shocking. So often there are things like cartoonish signs, I say cartoonish because they're like drawn, they're not actual, they're drawn pictures of democratic politicians eating babies. That's a common feature in Sign Guy's yard. As well, there are other signs 
connecting his views to religion. So who's wrong? Or not? Rainbow flag churches think they're doing a service to God. Sign guy thinks he's doing a service to God. I can be pretty sure that rainbow flag church and sign church guy don't think the other person's following God. I tend to think neither of them are doing at least as well as they ought to be. I'll explain. Consider sign guy. He's certainly aware, I would think, that most of the world hates him. Feels like a badge of honor. And he has strong convictions about morality. But being hated and having strong convictions about morality doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Muslims and secular atheists have strong convictions about right and wrong. Having strong moral convictions, even some that write moral convictions, does not make a person a Christian or even their message Christian. Signs, the signs, and I'm not there all the day, I, I drive more weekly or a few times a week rather than daily, but it seems to me that the signs are missing the very thing that makes Christianity Christianity, namely grace, mercy, the person of the finished person and work of the, Jesus Christ, like his atonement, his death, his resurrection, the extension of forgiveness to anyone who wants to come to the Father through him. That's missing. I could be wrong. I don't see every sign. But I don't get the sense that the gospel's there. Now for the churches with a rainbow flag, which signals a certain kind of inclusion. Not all kinds of inclusion, mind you. I don't think I'd be welcome there. I couldn't be a pastor there. I wouldn't be included. But what should I say about these churches? Well, let me say what I'm not saying. I'm going to not say something first. I am not saying that everyone who attends is not a Christian. I'm not even saying everyone who leads a church is not a Christian. I'm not saying that. How could I ever know? But here's what I am saying. When you consider the statements of faith of the various denominations, I'm thinking particularly of the ones that have exclusively rainbow flag church buildings. I'm saying their statements of faith are not Christian. It's not just one little difference. Like, like, oh, we share everything, but there's one little difference. Let me put it like this. If you deny the authority of Scripture, if you deny the necessity of the atonement, if you deny the personal bodily return of Jesus Christ, if you deny the deity of Christ, if you say there are other ways to God not through Jesus, and if you say that all religions have saving faith within them and anybody can come to God through their faithfulness to whatever religious system they choose, if you're saying that God honoring sexuality is whatever you would choose it to be, then I am saying that's not compatible with Christianity. Indeed, I'm saying holding these truths, at, which are non-truths, is holding on to something other than Christianity as it's portrayed in the Bible and been practiced for the last 2,000 years. My point is to illustrate is that it's very possible to think we are offering a service to God when we're not. Now, some people think they're following God because the world hates them when really they're just mean. Others think they're following God 
because they're being like God and being compassionate and really they're just worldly. How do we know for us? Sincere question. How do you know? Forget, forget sign guy, forget church. Like you, me, us. Like how do we know? I think we can. I was texting with one of my friends at church about this and the potential to deceive ourselves and here's the response back. Quote, we need each other to see ourselves clearly. Then he wrote, soft hearts before the word and community. When I say the call of the cross, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Jesus is calling us to have soft hearts before his word in the Christian community, especially the local church. We really need each other. We need brothers and sisters to help us see in what ways we need to be more in the world but not of the world. And that's so hard. That's so hard for many of us when most of us are choosing a church and choosing communities that affirm us, not challenge us. That's so hard. We read books, we, we have websites, we have news channels. We, that, that we don't seek them out to challenge us, but to affirm us, and it's so hard. And yet, this is the call of the cross. And this would take another sermon, and we don't have time for this, but people with soft hearts over time gain faith that becomes as strong as steel. So we'll close here. Let me lead us towards communion. We have a chance to have a soft heart before the word and before our community. In the introduction, I mentioned a man named Polycarp. He died in about 156 AD. When Polycarp was offered a chance to recant, he said again, 80 and six years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. Then he added, how can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of a fire, an everlasting fire of punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Not to disagree with Polycarp, but we could expand on the quote He's right that there is an eternal fire for the wicked, but communion helps us remember that the wicked was me. Jesus said that he chose us out of the world. In verse 19 we read, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Communion reminds us Not because of anything we've done, but because of what God did. He's chosen us out of the world. Because Jesus followed perfectly. Because Jesus endured the scorn, not only of the world's wrath, but God's wrath for sin. That he went through the fires of the wicked for us. Then we could experience no fire forever with God. And that is good news. It's an amazing story. That though the world will hate us, God never will. It's good news. Let me pray and invite our worship team to come up and lead us in communion. Um, and the, the servers, if you want to come up, you can grab the tray. Um, I'll pray and then 
the way we do communion here is just come forward when you're ready. And they'll put the bread uh, in your hand if you just hold it out and you can take a cup and just hang on to it. And when we've all been served, we'll, I'll come back out and lead us together. Um, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate. We would just ask that you would be saying, I, I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me. And I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and as we share in communion, we remember especially his promise of his second coming. In his name we pray.